In 2019, I started to see a flattening of the business revenue and it just felt like really hard to get more sales. And I was like, why is that? Like, what's going on? Like, am I missing something? And I started to realize that a lot of processes in the business were breaking, probably because we had not very many processes. So as your business scales, and if you experience big growth and you start to feel like it gets really hard, I would encourage you to look at your processes, people, and your product and see if there's any opportunities for improvement. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what is it like to work with a technical designer to create your products, what is the entrepreneurial operating system and how it can increase your bottom line, and what it's like going on Dragon's Den and the impact it had on their business. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the Storefront Signage Maker. It's an easy way for any brick-and-mortar shop owner to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com slash signage. Today I'm joined by Christy Sumer from Encircled. Encircled makes genuinely sustainable women's wear that is equal parts comfy, stylish, and versatile. And was started in 2012 and based out of Toronto. Welcome, Christy. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, so gave the tagline for a business, but give us an idea more about how did this, uh, how did the, the product, how did the business uh, come about? Like, what was the idea behind the business to begin with? Mm-hmm. So originally, the business actually started more as a travel clothing line. I formerly, in my previous career, was a management consultant. So I worked in strategy consulting and retail, and I used to live out of a suitcase. So I would travel to client sites pretty much weekly via plane. And I really got obsessed with the idea of packing light, but being stylish as well as comfortable while sitting on those long flights. So I came up with a product idea, which we still have in our collection today called the Chrysalis Cardi. And essentially it's an eight in one garment that can transition from a one shoulder gown to a cardigan, to a scarf, to a dress. And it's made from really beautiful, luxe, sustainable fabric. And it's just super comfortable, really versatile. So that became our first piece and kind of the foundation of the brand. It was definitely known as like a travel piece, but over the years, we've really evolved our positioning to focus on that idea of everyday essentials that people can wear over and over again to maximize versatility in their closet. Yeah. So, so, you know, when we think about clothing, we don't necessarily think about the, or most people don't think about the word technology, but based on the, the, this, the kind of process you're putting out there, there is technology involved. There are innovations that, that are involved in, but it's still also a slow fashion brand. So lots of challenges with those two mm-hmm. combinations. So tell us more about how you approach the, these challenges, especially with that first product. Like what was your background? Like how did you even <laughs> know how to create a product like this? Well, yeah. So as I mentioned, um, I come from like a very corporate background. So I was like about 10 years into my career when I came up with this idea and I have a finance degree and an MBA. So I have no business designing fashion products and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and back then, which was around like 2012, you know, the internet was not where it is today in terms of like online courses and Upwork and all these freelancer databases. So a lot of it was really figuring it out on my own and using resources locally to us in Toronto. So we had an incubator in Toronto called the Toronto Fashion Incubator, and they had a resume database. And I was able just by chance to find a technical designer through that. 
And that person was really key in helping me figure out how to create the garment. I had ideas, of course, of how I wanted it to function. And I kind of sewed up my own prototype on a, you know, a, a sewing machine that I bought off of Craigslist that I broke the first time I used because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I was really able to kind of play around with it, figure out the concept and then take it to somebody who knew a little bit more about design um, to create like a pattern and then try and find manufacturers locally who could make it, which was definitely probably one of the most challenging parts of that because the garment, as you mentioned, uh, was not your standard garment. So a lot of people thought I was a little crazy for what I was doing. Um, and a lot of manufacturers laughed me out of their factories. So it took some time, but with some persistence, um, I was able to find a manufacturer in Toronto who really, you know, he had a daughter, he really believed in what I was trying to do. And I think it connected with him. So he was able to convince his boss to take us on and make the first run of them. Yeah. So a couple of things in there. So around this idea of finding a technical designer, what is your, what is the the kind of collaboration like when you are working with a technical designer, you have a vision in mind, they have the expertise to kind of put it together. What's the working relationship like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say it's a, it, it's one that has to be kind of like a bit of back and forth. Now we have like an in-house design team, but, and we also do still use a few freelancers, but a lot of the time the ideas come from me and I just have these really crazy zany ideas of things I want to do. You know, maybe I want a um, blazer that looks like a blazer, but feels like a sweatshirt. And I want to do certain things to it, like put cool pockets in different places. And anyway, so basically I would pitch that idea to a technical designer and then they would kind of tell me what's possible possible in the world of fashion because some things are just not possible or potentially they're possible, but they're really expensive from a manufacturing standpoint or complicated or whatnot, or they don't just work with the way the fabric works because garments at the end of the day are require a lot of construction elements and there's certain fabrics that you can't make do certain things or else they just won't look nice or sometimes they won't last, they'll fall apart. So we've always been very intentional with our design. So a technical designer essentially would take that idea that I have, they would come up with a technical sketch and that would show kind of all the features and finishes and stuff like that. And from there, they would kind of take it to like the first muslin, you would call it, or first sample um, and do like a bit of a prototype and pattern and then work on perfecting the fit. And then basically for us, we have right now we go up to size XXL, but we're launching 3X up to 3X soon. Um, so then the next step would be really you know, getting pre-production samples done and grading that pattern up to all the different sizes and then going into production and finishing the technical pack, which would be like all the dimensions and measurements and stuff like that. So it's a fairly technical process. Mm-hmm. So that's why I also recommend if people are thinking of starting a fashion design business, definitely to hire an expert in this area, because unless you have a background in it, it's really hard to figure it out on your own. Yeah. And just, just in, in any other area where you you might not have the expertise and you're looking to hire, when you don't yourself have the expertise, what, what's your kind of advice on how do you be a good kind of judge of character or expertise when you're working with someone that clearly mm-hmm. has or, or saying they have a lot more expertise that, than you do, but you just don't have you know the, the kind of background to say they do or not? What's your recommendation on how to approach that kind of situation? Yeah, I totally can relate to that situation because I've had to hire a lot of people where I don't necessarily know um, if they say they can do one thing. For example, if somebody's like, yeah, I can do tech packs. And I'm like, okay, great. They can be a technical designer. But then I realized like in our business, we need somebody who can do pattern making as well because we are small. So we need somebody who can also sew a sample competently. So some of it is just like learning over time what you need in the business and asking getting to know and asking the right questions in the recruiting period and also looking at portfolios as well. 
Um, another thing you can do in the recruiting um, timeframe is to really like give people a little bit of a project. If you want to pay them for that, that's cool too, but give them a test of their skills so that they can really see what they can do. So can they actually take this idea and sketch it and make a pattern or would they get stuck? And that's a pretty good assessment in terms of like how they would do, you know, in real life in your business. So it's good to get that out of the way up front. Um, and definitely if you want to pay them to do like a contract work or something like that before hiring them, that that's, that's also an option as well. That makes sense. So now you had mentioned that once the, the, the kind of technical design was done, this next step was to find manufacturers had a lot of challenges there because not a lot of people believe that it's not like they didn't believe that in the vision, nor that it was possible. So when mm-hmm. you are working a manufacturer that that believes in the vision, and you're creating something that sounds like they, most people don't have experience with, uh, what's that relationship like? How do you make sure that your vision is carried out, especially when it's not like kind of cookie cutter, I guess, approach to creating another product that they're familiar with? Yeah. So I think that's, that's a really important step, I think, is to find somebody who believes in your vision and what you're trying to do, um, especially with us, because a lot of our designs are versatile. So even now we have place, like designs that are reversible, or maybe they change shape or form. So they turn from a dress to a tunic, or um, they change length and, or the sleeves come off or something like that. Like we in, integrate a lot of that and that's not very common in fashion. So you really need a manufacturer who's ready to work with you and gets what you're trying to do and can adapt to that. So you really need to figure out if they have the skill to be able to do that. And especially in the fashion industry, you know, there's not, you have to be really specific with your requirements and definitely test test, test and do samples with factories before you get them made, because that will show you um, the level of competence and and ability to sew. Um, I would say in terms of getting them on board, we've been very lucky in Toronto, like aside from that, like first run where that product was just very scary for people because it had like hand-sewn snaps. So that's what the secret was to the versatility for creating all these different looks. Um, and people just thought that was insane. Um, you know, and so some of it was just like showing them really, this is the vision. This is what I'm trying to do. This is why I'm trying to do it. This is why it matters to me. And this is why I think it would be good. And then showing them some of the success. So a lot of when I was first getting started, you know, we had a couple of small manufacturers we were working with. I'd be like, Hey, guess what? Like, you know, those dressy sweatpants you made for us, they're sold out already in like a week. And our manufacturers would get really excited. They're like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. I can't wait to get the next order. So really involving, I think your manufacturers and your business planning as well and sharing some of the successes and results can help them stay motivated to want to work with you as well. Yeah. So when you, when you first were looking to release this product and you go through these challenges of actually creating it, what, 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 um, effort or what, 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 what was going on in, in making sure that the market understood that there was a, a problem that, that you were solving to like how much market research or how much testing did you have to do when you were releasing that first product and then also a subsequent uh, product line since then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first product, I actually tested a lot on my friends before I launched it. So the original prototype had like, I think 20 snaps on it. And I started testing with my friends and I was like, look at all the cool looks you can do. And nobody could figure it out. And I actually realized I was having trouble figuring out some of the ways to do all the different looks because it was so complex. So through that process, I actually brought it down to six snaps, which is what it is today. And that was so much easier to use. So I just, anytime I would honestly have a friend over to my place, because my friends were like pretty close to my core demographic, I'd be like, Hey, do you want to try this on? Do you think this is cool? Um, A lot of what I did too early on, especially with that product was I did a lot of research online to see, okay, 
has somebody else done this? Like, is this really that unique? And although people had done these like versatile, like um, infinity scarves, like American Apparel had one back in the day where you could tie it. Um, you know, I bought that product and I realized that our product was way better made. It was hemmed. The fabric was high quality. You know, it's just so much more functional. So I did a little bit of that. And then I started to see like, people thought it was cool. So I was like, I I knew I was onto something in my gut. Um, but I do think from an online perspective, you know, if you are starting a business in this area or just generally with product-based business, if you have an audience or community, already who you can reach out to on Instagram or Facebook or wherever, um, that can be a great source for product development ideas. So we've definitely had some really successful products that have been developed um, in conjunction with our customers. So we launched a t-shirt dress maybe three or four years ago, and that was fully developed with our customers on Instagram. Like we basically asked them what they loathe and love about a t-shirt dress and developed a t-shirt dress based on all of that. And that product sold out in 24 hours. So I think the more you can integrate people along the way of your product and test it with them, you'll get great feedback that you can iterate on and make a better product ultimately in the end. I like the idea of this, this, this idea of developing with your customers on Instagram. That's super cool that you can integrate them in that way. When, when you do that, like, uh, is there a, a method, an approach or specific questions that you're looking to have answered? Because I can imagine, especially once you have a larger customer base or you have access to a large audience, it could just be like an onslaught of fire hose of opinions. Mm. How do you make sure that you are um, steering the ship with all of the, the, this, the all of these different opinions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, usually it starts with a concept. So usually we have an idea of something we want to make. So for example, for years, we've been trying to make the perfect comfy work pant and we've struggled a lot in terms of finding a fabric that checks the boxes on sustainability and ethics and performance. And we finally have found that fabric. But a few years ago, we did a survey uh, through email with our customers. And I think we promoted it on social as well and just asked them what, you know, what do they like? What would be their dream work pant? And we basically just phrased a few questions. So like, what kind of waistband do you want? We gave visual examples so people could see like, okay, that's a flat waistband. This is belt loops. Um, you know, do you want a zipper or not? Do you want it to be hand wash or dry clean only? Or are you, would you prefer machine washable? Um, and we'll ask those kinds of questions. And I found that to be the most valuable is just doing that kind of traditional market research um, survey where they have forced choice. Because if you open it up, like what we do with the t-shirt dress, you know, we have like 500 comments um, and we had to sort mm. through all those comments and then kind of try and figure out which ones were the most valid and had the most weight behind them. Um, you know, and part of my background is from consumer packaged goods and we used to do a lot of insight testing and research. So I think there's value in having both that kind of qualitative um, verbatim stuff from people, but then turning that into an actual quantitative survey, I think is the best bet when it comes to product development. Yeah, I can imagine too that that you might get a lot of answers that might be great ingredients on their own, but when when it comes together, it just doesn't work. Or maybe there's even conflicting, uh, almost mm-hmm. like features or benefits that people are looking for. Uh, do you have any examples of those kind of challenges and how you were able to to resolve them? Because I think this is a, an issue that when people go out and you know, quote unquote, do market research or figure out what to what to build, what to release it's almost like they're just kind of, they go run situation where they're just mis, like mishmashing, you know, a bunch of opinions together. So how do you make those kind of hard decisions? Yeah. I mean, it, it is really difficult, but I would say, you know, one thing that comes up surprisingly often in our business is does this garment have pockets <laughs> and women love pockets and clothing, but sometimes um, having a pocket, for example, in a dress 
depending on the material, it just won't look good no matter what you do to that pocket in production. You can make it like the most lightweight hidden pocket, but if it's like a very drapey, soft fabric, you'll probably see the pocket. And then if you put something in the pocket, like an iPhone, which nowadays are like an iPad, basically, you'll see that in the pocket. Like it's really not that functional. So that's something where, you know, oftentimes customers will be like, oh, I just wish it had pockets. Um, But you kind of have to make that best decision based on your gut, I think a little bit. I think also you have to look at the capabilities of the product materials you're using to see if it even makes sense. Because a lot of times I want to do things in products and then somebody who has technical background will be like, yeah, you could put a zipper there, but this is what's probably going to happen. Like it's probably going to get wavy after the first wash or whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's not in alignment with our quality. So we really want long lasting, like easy to wash and care for garments. So some of it is tapping back into your values as well. And then just really connecting back into the intention of the product. Like ultimately you can take input from a lot of people on your product, but it's your brand vision. So it really needs to align with what you want to put out there in the market. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of making a lot of these decisions and they're, they're informed, but it, how do you make sure that your customers know that you're intentionally, for example, let's use the pocket example, you're intentionally not including a pocket for their, their benefit or for the benefit of the, 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 the reason why you're creating the, this product or creating a product in a certain way. So maybe the question is more around like, how do you educate your customers on the, um, the, 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 the decisions maybe that, that you're making? Yeah. So definitely it's something we call out when we're like launching a product. So very different than I would say a lot of fashion designers, we launch pretty much products. We don't launch collections. So we really make a product, a hero of our launches. So for example, we have a dress coming up that um, the sleeves change length and it's based on an existing top in our collection. And that dress will not have pockets. And the reason it does not have pockets is because it's the slip dress. It's very slim fitting. It would not look good with pockets. So that's something specifically we will call out in the marketing and tell a story around it. So it will be like, when we were designing this dress, we tested it and we did all these things. Like we do a lot of storytelling, not only on social, but also in our emails. Um, I'm used to writing a lot of long form emails, kind of explaining the design process behind our designs, just so people see what goes into that. Because I think, you know, if you haven't worked in a fashion brand or in a product based business, you don't know how much thought goes into these decisions. So we like to be really transparent and open and share that with our customers. So we will actually call it out. um, And then on our features uh, on the product description page, we might even say like no pockets, but slim, like like curve hugging silhouette or something like that. We'll put it into the actual product details. Yeah. So basically almost like show them that, that you're being intentional and including them on the, the background of the decisions that you're making. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, this might not be the reason why you do it, but I think it increases that perceived value too. Like, Hey, there's, there's a lot of almost like R and D that's involved in, in creating mm-hmm. a product. that's not just something that, you know, we, we slap together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's been a little bit hard for the past two years Um, in the pandemic, because we've been working largely remote, you know, with a few people coming in and out of the studio, but we used to do a lot more, you know, real-time sharing of even product development. So we would, you know, for example, when we were developing the t-shirt dress, I remember we were taking photos of it and videos of the fitting in the office. And we're like, what length do you guys think it should be? Do you think it should be midi length or full length or knee length? And then we literally cut it with scissors on the model um, on video to show people that we were doing this. So I think when you involve your customers and your community in that process, they also start to understand like just how much work and 
effort goes into that product and that you are considering them and thinking of what's best for them as well in that process versus, you know, a lot of fast fashion brands will just pump out as many products as possible. um, And they don't even have time to do proper fittings on them often. So, you know, if you're really going for that quality over quantity, I think it's important to share that process with people so they understand that that is something that that means something to you. Yeah, you know, one thing that I, that I've been hearing more from entrepreneurs that have come on the podcast is that that there's a sh- almost like a, starting to see a shift where uh, profit is not the only motive anymore, or not not one of the, almost maybe not even one of the top motive motivations. And you had mentioned earlier about how uh, most sometimes when you're making decisions, you go back to this questions like, is it meet one, meeting one of our core values? And the example you gave was around does it meet the core value of quality? And one of the taglines that that, that I read was around doing more with less. So what's your kind of filtering system, your maybe model that you have in your head when you are approaching these kind of decisions to make sure that you are, you know, consistently making decisions that uh, at the end of the day, you can look back and say, you know, these actually do align with my, with our values. How do you, how do you make sure you uphold those? Yeah, I would say we, we have almost too much integrity. <laughs> so um, we very much live by our values that encircled. We're a certified B Corp. And we will literally not make products if we can't find the right fabric to do it in that meets our sustainability criteria. Like the example I gave you with the work pant, um, we had a full design. We had done a survey with over 1,200 women um, and female identifying people to um, talk about work pants and like what they're missing. And then we went ahead and we found, you know, three or four fabrics. They met the sustainability criteria for us. Um, Performance wise, they were okay. But when we washed them, all of them were like bleeding dye and fading and shrinking and they were not performing what we what we would want to be in terms of quality. Um, So we literally canceled that launch Um, and we've canceled launches this year because, you know, the product just didn't look up to our standards or maybe we couldn't hit a price point where we thought it would be successful. Um, So we do live and die by our values quite a bit because it is important for us to make products that are impactful because we are a slow fashion brand um, and we only have so many resources. So we won't just launch something just because we think, you know, it's going to make us a ton of money. I mean, I think our supply chain being local as well, like, you know, we're really in this to make a difference in the fashion industry in a positive way. Um, but I think it's, it's a tough balance, right? Because we do know that like new products do drive incremental revenue and they drive new customers. And so we try to find that balance of doing those things, but, um, you know, I'm not afraid to cancel a product if I don't think it's going to work. Um, and we've definitely done that before. So I think entrepreneurs have to be ready to make some of those tough decisions and build in that buffer, um, whether it's having other products kind of in the queue to replace it or just being ready to tell that story to customers as to why there's no product launching. Um, it's something that we've done for a really, really long time. And it's something that we'll keep up, I think, as we scale. Yeah, this is this idea of, of canceling uh, you know, projects or products that, that you're releasing, this kind of culling that's required for, for entrepreneurs, not just, just to make sure that you're, you're sticking with your values, but then also you just don't want to be distracted or you don't want to choose the wrong things to, to focus on. Um, now, when you are going through that process, and we had mentioned you know, the, the idea of doing more with less and the idea of slow fashion, and a lot of the kind of examples you gave were almost like things within your company where internally you, you, you and your team are making these hard decisions. Are there any external factors that you feel 
that tend to kind of prod you along to 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 unbalance you or to do more than than what you would typically do that you know challenge your values like do you experience that where in the industry or other companies other you know competitors all of a sudden kind of put that kind of pressure on you in the in the company mm-hmm. yeah i would say in the last couple of years we've even before the pandemic we've seen um an increase in slow fashion brands coming to market, which I think is really great. Um, but it's also leaves room for a lot of replication. And we've definitely had designs copied, uh, which is really unfortunate. Um, but unfortunately, at least where we are in Canada, there's very little protection for fashion um, design copyright. So um, it's just something that kind of happens. So as much as I can, I try to keep my eyes on you know, my own page, but there is that pressure to like, as I'm sure you've had with other guests talk about like, raise capital and scale and, you know, grow really fast. And, you know, they just recently released this list in Canada, the global male fastest growing companies. And actually in my state of overwhelm of 2021, I didn't even apply for it with Encircled, even though we would have made the list. Um, I forgot, but I was looking at the growth of those companies on that list. And like some of them are growing 2000, 3000% year over year, which is massive. And I think there's always that pressure in e-commerce to kind of be bigger, faster, whatever, which does at sometimes, you know, run into odds of like, it's, it's at odds with our values to a certain extent as well. And our structure of our business and our supply chain. So it's something I've had to personally kind of reconcile a little bit over the last year, because we did grow almost 70% in 2020. Um, so that was a massive growth for us and just being able to keep up with that from a production standpoint. And then also, keep the design pipeline going in a pandemic and designing virtually, like it's been a lot. Um, I would say like, you know, in terms of that, I always come back to what kind of business and lifestyle I want to have and what kind of business I want to run. Um, and bigger isn't necessarily always better. Um, but I do think there's something to running a more simplified business model for sure. So it's something we're definitely actively looking at, like how can we simplify? Because I, I would say in the pandemic, we got involved in some products where um, we wouldn't have necessarily launched them previous to that, but just there was so much market demand for them. Like we started selling, as an example, non-medical organic cotton masks um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Like we were one of the first brands to move on that in Canada and it got us the number one placement in SEO um, on Google for face masks. and our business blew up with face masks. Was I hoping to sell face masks, you know, as my primary product for the first like six months in um, 2020? No, but it's something we could step in to do not only just both from a sale, but also a donation perspective to the community. So I think we've tried to like roll with the punches as much as possible. But for me, I really want to get back to our core products and designing just these really innovative garments that, um, can stand the test of time as well, because we do have products like our dressy sweatpants that we've had in our collection for seven years. And that's something that like a lot of fashion brands could never say. Um, and just the incremental value of having a product like that is so good because you've put all this design work into it and now you can produce it over and over again. So that to me is really our core focus, getting back to those kind of hero products that really deliver for our customers. Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. 
Yeah, and I, 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 like you say more about this, I think this idea of having hero products and, and, and not releasing product lines and kind of a simpler collection or a smaller collection of, of products and this simplification of a business. What have you found as the benefits? I think that, again, going back to this earlier topic about how pro, pro, profit being the, the main motive, a lot of times it leads to complexity and just bring on more and more and more. And you're talking about simplification, which is, you know, in the opposite direction. Um, but I think a lot of people think simplification means that, oh, you're not, you know, capturing a larger market, and which may be true. But what are some of the benefits that you found by having a simpler business or, or moving towards even more simplification? Yeah, I definitely think, you know, I, I think we have about four, 40 SKUs right now, probably in total, like 40 products. Um, simplification is good because it allows you to have better control over your inventory. Um, you can manage your inventory on hand a little bit more closely. Uh, you can really have a sense of what's driving your business, what's not driving your business. Um, and I think it, it reduces the complexity of fulfillment in your business and whatnot as well, as well as your marketing message too. Um, you know, it's good to have like basket builders on your website and smaller products that can add value to that. But I think getting too spread too thin as a small business can be something that can really take a smaller business out because, you know, oftentimes when you go into products, especially if they're not in your core zone of genius, let's say, um, like if you were like a t-shirt brand and you want to launch denim, it's a whole different supply chain. So you're going to need like a whole different design team and whole different supply mm. network. And that's a lot of distraction. Um, so one of the things we did um, in late 2019, we put into place um, the Entrepreneur's Organizational System, EOS. Um, and that's been really critical to aligning everybody in the business and keeping them focused on what the priorities are for the quarter. Um, and, you know, really engaging with our leadership team to make sure that we're focusing on the right things as well. Because, you know, I'm sure you've heard from many guests that like, there's always work to be done in a small business. So it's really important to keep the team focused on, you know, less is more and what what's really going to move the needle, not only on sales, but on profitability as well. Yeah, can you say more about that, that system? You said it was the entrepreneurial uh, operating system. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So there's a book called Traction um, by Gino Wickman. Um, highly recommend it as a read for all entrepreneurs. And he recommends a system of business management called EOS that basically is a quarterly system. So you run your business in 90-day increments um, and you have like an annual planning session as well where you developed annual company rocks, which are essentially like the annual priorities for the brand. And then every 90 days, you break that into like 90-day sprints with your team. And then, you know, your team, if your team has a team, they also get 90-day rocks. And then you have a scorecard and you meet pretty much weekly as a leadership team. We meet for 90 minutes where we talk about all the priorities. We go through the scorecard metrics and we flag anything that's on track or off track. And then we take action against that. And that's been super helpful in terms of like, not only like achieving opportunities, because there's always things that come into the business where you could do this, but at what cost and at what other opportunity kind of taking that out? Because you only have so many resources, right? And then also in identifying challenges in the business and, you know, how can we fix this and what are we going to do going forward and keeping people all on the same page? So I don't know how we would have gotten through the last two years without that system in place, because being a remote business, it's definitely a little bit more challenging to run. And how did you know that you needed a system like this? Like what kind of pains were you, you feeling that maybe other listeners might be going through that the system would make sense for them? In 2018, we grew massively. I think we almost doubled our business. And in 2019, I started to see a flattening of the business revenue. 
And it just felt like really hard to get more sales. And I was like, why is that? Like, what's going on? Like, am I missing something? And I started to realize that a lot of processes in the business were breaking, probably because we had not very many processes. So as your business scales, and if you experience big growth and you start to feel like it gets really hard, I would encourage you to look at your processes, people, um, and your product and see if there's any opportunities for improvement. And for us at that stage, we almost had no processes. People were off just working on whatever came on their you know, plate or inbox for the day. Um, and not everybody was focused in the same direction. And we weren't even really, you know, even managers didn't even really know what targets we were going for, for sales. Like it was just like accidental that we were achieving them. So through this process, we've been able to share more financial transparency with the team. So they know this is the target for like Q4, for example, and this is the key metrics we want to improve. And that's really helped guide the actions. So I think if anybody's experiencing either like a slip in sales, or maybe their gross margin is declining, or perhaps their profitability is declining. Um, I even think if you're not experiencing any of those and you want to grow a business that's sustainable and, and possibly sellable, it's a great system to put in place because I know a lot of top entrepreneurs uh, run businesses with this system. So that's kind of originally where I got the idea to do it. Um, so I recommend even if you have like five employees, I think you can put this in place. Yeah, I can imagine that the larger of scale of business, though, the, the more potential friction is required or you run into when you want to introduce a system, right? There's just a concept of, oh, more red tape that's involved in, in a fledging startup. Uh, can you talk to us about how you're able to introduce a, a system to a previously almost like Wild Wild West business that, that you were running? Mm-hmm. Like, how were you able to do it? Yeah, I mean, for sure. People are used to making decisions based on what they know in their head. Um, And I think that's great as long as those employees stick around, but if they leave or if they're sick, then oftentimes those systems and processes disappear with them. Um, So I would say it was like a gradual process. Like, you know, EOS is something where it takes a little bit to get it right. Um, We actually hired somebody somewhat recently to come in for our planning session last quarter to help us guide it because we want to get that outside perspective and make sure we're doing things right. Um, but for us, it's just been a bit of a transition for the team. Like we started off with just doing like, um, you know, we didn't jump right in and have everybody have rocks. We just gave the management team rocks and we were like, okay, so my four managers now have these priorities and and that's it. And then through 2020, we kind of ran like that. And then this year we started to really break that down into departmental KPIs. So like marketing, we would have specific key performance indicators that they're tracking to. So it's really, we didn't like dive headfirst into it. We kind of gradually started to roll that out. Um, and the process component of it, there is an, a part of EOS, which is to document all your processes and make them centralized. That we started um, and that was definitely very helpful. But again, processes are something where you can't put them on the shelf. You always have to evolve them. So it's something we're actively working on right now, prior to Black Friday, trying to get, you know, a refresh of those, make sure they're up to date and all the training. So it is a lot of work. You can definitely hire somebody. You can hire EOS trained integrators, they call them, who can put in these systems for you. Uh, We decided to do it ourselves. Uh, I don't know if I would recommend it either way. I think there's pros and cons to each. Um, But I would say don't expect your team to take it on all at once. There's a lot of changes that have to be made. So I think the more gradually you can roll it out, the better. And one of the benefits, it sounds like, is that it bubbles up a lot of the problems that have existed, but they're underneath the surface. Can you can you talk about some of them? Like, what were some of the big learnings from now having a system in place? Like, what were some of the things that you didn't realize just from your vantage point that now came to the surface? 
Yeah, for sure. I think a couple of them were um, how we were managing returns, I think was one of them for sure that bubbled up as an issue this year. Um, you know, previously we had like a pretty tight system in place for returns. And I guess we had a couple of people not following that system um, because they were new and maybe they weren't trained on it. And so we built up a huge backlog of returns in the middle of the pandemic and we had to process all of those and customers were not happy. Um, whereas like if we had a process for intaking them and making sure we process a certain amount every day or whatever, we wouldn't have been in that situation, but basically somebody let them build up for like 30 days. And we wouldn't have discovered that had we not been checking, you know, those KPIs because the big flag was that our return rate was really low, um, for a couple of weeks. And we were like, why is that so low? Like, are we just, is it all final sale? Like, what are people buying? And as soon as we did that investigation, we realized that somebody wasn't processing returns. That's why it was so low. So really leaning on those scorecards and key performance indicators as flags for possible, um, problems, I think is really important, um, in the business as well. Mm. And you know, speaking of kind of the, these shifts in, in in the way that you run your business, you had mentioned uh, we, we talked about how at first the 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 idea behind a business was to focus on traveling light, and now the the kind of um, a larger umbrellas around uh, living light, right? Having uh, less in your in your closet, your customer's closet. You mentioned when you made this kind of shift to kind of focus on more or different problem areas for your customer. What, what kind of changes do you have to make for for the business to make sure that you can support kind of a, a larger umbrella? We went through like a rebranding exercise with a small agency in 2016. Um, that's originally when we started to move away from the travel messaging, and we we started talking about being more with less and really integrating that throughout not only just consumer facing, but back, you know, back office um, stuff as well. So for us, it it ranged in changing everything from like our opt-in incentive for our email newsletter, for example, was like a carry-on only packing list. Um, So we developed a whole uh, printable minimalist wardrobe workbook that people could use to streamline their wardrobe as our new opt-in incentive. And of course, all of our like colors and photography and content changed who we worked with. We used to work with a ton of travel influencers. So we started working with more minimalist lifestyle influencers um, through to the back end as in terms of like what products, you know, in our assortment. So we moved, you know, not to, not away from convertible clothing, but we started focused at introducing some basics into our assortment, like really high quality t-shirts and stuff like that to fill in and round out the wardrobe. So it was really like a holistic process of, um, reviewing all the f- customer facing touch points and everything that needed to change. It was quite an exercise at the time. Luckily we were still fairly small. So I think it was a lot easier than it would be now to reorient the ship. Um, but for us, it was definitely a good time to do it. And I'm very thankful in the previous to the pandemic, we switched our messaging um, because I think anybody in the travel space, unfortunately has been hit really hard in the last like two years. Yeah, when you make this kind of transition, was it was it clear that that we're that you inside and outside that the company was uh, covering it in a larger kind of problem area than than before, or uh, was it much more gradual? Like how quickly were you releasing uh, new products that would solve for these new types of problems? 
Yeah, I think it was pretty much, we tried to coordinate it to all kind of flip over on one day. I remember we had like, <laughs> we had like an Instagram live and we bought like this big cookie with our new logo because we changed our logo also at that time. Um, and we did this whole live and we did a newsletter talking about why we changed it. And we did a blog post. Like we really tried to cover off all the touch points that a customer would interact with with us. And then obviously like anything else like press or influencers, like we tried to proactively pitch them on the new concept and stuff like that, just so that it would kind of roll out. Um, you still see us in, like people still think of us um, for sure in the travel context, but I definitely think we've been able to um, come up as more everyday apparel for people for sure. And that's just reflected through our assortment as well. Mm. Now, when you do release new, 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 these kind of hero products, where does the, the original idea behind it uh, come from? Like where, uh, where is the, the kind of seed of it come from before you kind of kick off this entire product development process? Yeah, a lot of it comes from me still. So I'll look at like our customer and like what need can we fulfill in their wardrobe? So what gaps do we have in our assortment? What's missing? Like as an example, um, right now I'm working on a, um, we just launched a new fabric in our collection, which is a Tencel Micromodal Scuba. So it's like a workwear stretch meets activewear fabric. So it has a lot of stretchy, comfortable properties, but it looks very dressy. So it looks almost like suiting, but it feels like legging fabric. Um, so that's a new fabric for us. So we've launched a couple of styles in that. And, um, I thought, you know, it would be really great to have a complimentary piece, like maybe like a shorter cropped, um, jacket or cardigan. So I started playing around with that idea. And then I came up with this idea of doing, um, just the perfect blend between a jacket and a cardigan, a jardigan, um, basically for over piece for that. And, you know, that will kind of start just from my eyes and I'll be like, okay, this is a good idea. And then oftentimes I'll like test it with people. So like I mentioned, I would maybe go into our Facebook group where we have over a thousand customers and say, you know, these are some of the ideas that we have coming up. What do you think? Um, And ask for their feedback. Um, And then sometimes we just know enough about the product that we know we can line extend off of it very comfortably. So as an example, we have two styles that are top selling styles the Evolve Top and the Dressy Sweatpant. And we're about to launch size extensions in that up to 3X. And we just know those will do really well because it's something people have been asking for. So I think it's a little bit of push and pull. We consistently get a lot of feedback uh, from customers, not only just online, but also there's an email flow that we have that goes out through Clavio where it asks customers specifically for feedback after their first order. Um, So I get a lot of insights from that in terms of what people are looking for in their wardrobe. And it kind of all culminates up into the design vision. Awesome. So and I want to talk about something a, a, a something that you had mentioned to us about a a challenging period that you have in, in the business, which is around the experience of going on Dragon's Den. So tell us the kind of the story about uh, what was like going in, like what ended up happening. And, and yeah, we'll start from there. Yeah. So I went on Dragon's Den, which is like the Canadian, well, Canadian version of Shark Tank, I guess, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, in 20, I think it was 2015. Um, I gotten, I'd done a pitch for uh, the show. They loved it. They wanted me to come on and record. And so I worked with a producer to develop a pitch and actually hired eight of my friends to come in and wear each of the eight ways you could wear the Chrysalis Cardi, uh, which was our hero product at that time and did this whole pitch to the dragons. And you know what? They love the idea. They love the business. Um, they, they were very complimentary to me on knowing my numbers and everything. And they thought the valuation was fair. Um, and then we ended up getting two offers uh, from two dragons each. 
Um, one was more of like a uh, kind of like a line of credit kind of with like a royalty kind of deal. And then the other one was more of a straight equity placement. So we went with the equity placement and then um, I was super excited. And then I went and I leased an office space uh, because I was still working out of my my house. And um, then I found out in due diligence that they decided not to move forward with the deal. Um, so I was obviously really devastated because I'd also leased this office. And I think I'd hired somebody at that time as well, um, part-time to help me. And then I'd found out, number one, that they rejected the deal because they felt like it wasn't, the business wasn't big enough for them. And then also the episode never aired. So we also did not get um, the promotional push from it because it just never aired. So not that it was like wasted time at all because we were, we filmed for a very long time and I knew, I knew a lot of them didn't air something like, I guess they only air only 5% of deals or less go through apparently. And then I think about 50% of the episodes never air. Um, but it was, it was devastating for me pretty early on. Cause I took it pretty hard. Cause I thought, Oh my gosh, like, is this business concept not good? Um, but I was able to kind of pick myself back up again and, and figure out an alternate plan pretty quickly. Yeah. I think the big lesson here that I want to talk about is how you pick yourself back up. I think, you know, running through these kind of ups and downs of entrepreneurship, uh, there's a lot of uh, damage that you're, you're taking that you kind of have to recover from. So tell us more about what that period was like. How were you able to go from these kind of nagging thoughts and doubts about whether this was even a good idea, this business was even a good idea or not to now, you know, pulling yourself out and getting to where you are today? Yeah, I would say it took a few weeks for sure. I felt a little sorry for myself for a few weeks. And then I just kind of realized like I had talked to, um, I had a mentor at that time and I had talked to them about it and, and told them what the feedback was. And they had told me that, you know, it's probably not the right business for them, but that doesn't mean it's not the right business for you, uh, which was really, really good advice. So I kind of took what I learned from it, which what I learned was that our business valuation was really fair. Um, we had strong numbers. Um, we had good metrics in our business and I repitched another investor. Um, and with a higher valuation, actually, I ended up bumping up my valuation. And then we actually ended up working out a small angel investment placement with that investor who's still an investor with us today. Um, so had I not had that happen, I don't think I would have met this investor who has been a really great partner of ours, um, throughout our journey as well. So, and I actually think they're a better fit than any of the dragons would have ever been personally. So, so it, it all kind of worked out, but I definitely like recommend leaning on not only mentors, if you have them, but you're also your entrepreneurial network. It's really important to have, um, friends who are entrepreneurs as you are becoming an entrepreneur, because honestly, like I, I love my other friends, but they don't understand it's a, it's a different lifestyle and it's when you're really passionate about your business and something goes wrong, it's not just business. It's, it is, it feels personal. So having that network who can kind of pick you up when you fall down, I think is, is really critical to recovering from a failure like that. Yeah. You know, look, and I'm sure you're looking back now, like the things like the, the lease and hiring an employee before you were getting the funding, they, they don't seem that big looking back now, but ba back at that moment, they must've been uh, huge feelings of uh, challenges. Uh, what have you kind of, what, after that, after that experience, did that change anything for you when it came to this idea of like risk and how risky you're willing to take and how, how almost like uh, how, how, how far ahead can you, you plan for your business? Did that change anything with your approach to, in, in that regard? 
Yeah, I would say I'm a pretty risk averse person generally. <laughs> like I'm probably not your typical entrepreneur profile that you would hear about. I'm very financially like driven in terms of management of the business. So um, I'm really into cash flow and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I watch a lot of the metrics really closely. Um, so I would say that was like a big leap for me for sure. Um, but I do realize that you have to make some of those leaps sometimes. Like you're not, you're never going to have that certainty that I think a lot of people crave in their life when you choose the life of being an entrepreneur. So like, as an example, you know, we were in that studio, I think for three years or something like that. And then we really outgrew the space and, you know, there was a much larger space down the street, way more expensive, like five times the rent. Um, and we were way too small for it at that point, but I was like, you know what, we could get really big and we could take over the space. And what would that look like? So for me, it's more about making, you know, calculated decisions. So now I would take, you know, that space and say, okay, that's going to be whatever, $6,000 a month in rent. And then how long can I afford that? At what point, like, is like a break even for that. And I would do a lot more financial analysis around a big investment like that, because, now, like, you know, back then, I think our lease was like a, maybe a thousand dollars or something. So like, that's pretty sustainable. But if it's like a major, major deal, definitely like do your own due diligence and do your own financial analysis to see, you know, if it is good, you know, this will work. If it isn't good, this is the consequences. And can your business manage that financially? Um, and what would be the impact? I think looking at all sides of that, if you are a little bit more risk averse is, is important, but you'll never know the answer. That's the problem. Um, you always have to just kind of go with your gut at the end of the day. And one of these decisions that you made was this, this decision to go 100% e-commerce. Was that an easy decision to make? Like what went what, what into that, 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 that decision? Yeah. So, I mean, originally we started off doing a little bit of wholesale. And I think that's just because people were emailing us asking us if they could sell our product. And I was pretty new in the business. So I was like, sure, they'll make us money. That's fine. I don't know how wholesale works, but it sounds good. Um, and then I, the more we start to do a little bit of wholesale, I realized that our business model is not set up for wholesale. Um, not only did we not have like the pricing structure for it, but also, you know, wholesale retail at the time would buy in like seasons, like they're buying, like, you know, right now they would be buying like next year, the summer, spring, summer, and like, we don't even know what we're making in Q4 yet. So like, we just don't have the business model to support that kind of buying strategy. Um, so it started to become like, just not a fit for us. And also it's with our pricing structure, it was very margin dilutive. We weren't making a lot of margin off of it. Um, so we decided to really switch up tact and, you know, it was always a fairly small part of our business, but we decided to go wholly e-commerce and, you know, that was really important too, I think, because having your products in retail stores, I think is important, but you have to have people there who are committed to telling your story as well as showing off the garment. Um, and we can sometimes do a better job of that online, especially with these like multi-way pieces where you can have videos and instructions and all these kind of things on them. So that was a pretty deliberate decision. And I think it was necessary given our supply chain as well. Just, we wanted to be able to be price competitive with you know, Lululemon um, in terms of our retails to make it more accessible for people to switch to a sustainable active wear. Um, but we realized we couldn't do that if we went wholesale either. Like you can't kind of have it all. So uh, for us, it was just a, a, a matter of simplifying down to that and creating a, a different business model that would support our business. 
Yeah, one of the cool things that that uh, that you said there that that it was interesting to me was about how uh, you have to have your the people that are selling that are talking to your customers really be able to tell the story. And one of the um, cool things I saw on the on your web website is around this idea of this virtual fitting. So tell us more about that. Like, what is the virtual fitting, and how does it all work? Hmm. Yeah. So that's something we. So previous to the pandemic, we actually had a retail space within our studio. And that was actually pretty popular. And we were getting into a lot of like pop-up events and stuff like that. Um, So we would have people book in on a schedule, come into the studio and have like a one-on-one fitting uh, with our customer love team at our retail um, space. And those were really great interactions. And generally we found like people would just end up buying more. They would return less. They would leave really happy. They were excited to see the space and people working in the space. Um, so when we lost that space in the, you know, March, 2020, um, you know, we wanted to figure out how we could reconnect with our customers and offer them that type of service without, you know, obviously with the restraints of being, you know, one of the cities who's been in one of the longest lockdowns for, I think like 500 days or something like that cumulatively. So we came to the online model, like doing virtual fittings. Um, so we basically set that up with, um, an app called Acuity, which is like a scheduling software where people can go online to our website, learn about what a virtual fitting is and book in directly into the calendar. And then one of our customer love uh, reps either FaceTimes them or does a Zoom call. And basically they can ask any questions they have on like the garment or they can pull stuff from the back room to show them. They can give them fit advice. And we found these to be pretty helpful in terms of, because oftentimes there's like a lot of questions on sizing and fit that come up as like a barrier to why somebody might purchase, especially if they're ordering from like overseas or outside of Canada. So we found this to be a really helpful tool for, you know, answering all those questions and improving conversions online. Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's a, it's a great idea to be able to to kind of bridge that gap between the experience someone would 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 have in a retail store and and bring that that online, I really love it. So, encircle.ca or .co if you're in in the US is the website. Definitely recommend people check out um, some of the, the cool things that that you're doing there in terms of customer service. And I'll I'll leave you the, this last question, which is, um, what, what do you think is going to be the most important area for you to remain focused on um, in this in this uh, coming year? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, I would say um, for us, it's probably continuing some of that simplification, um, not just in process, but in product and the way we work. Um, Because what we've seen in the industry in the last at least like year is that prices are going up. um, There's a lot of labor market changes. um, There's a lot of changes just in general and how people are working and living So I think for us, it's really important to stay focused and streamline as much as possible and work as efficiently as we can and work as well as we can within the new paradigm of how people want to work. So uh, we're definitely thinking forward about a lot of that and then developing collections that really fit into um, somebody's life today and what they really need in their closet today to live comfortably and um, have a versatile wardrobe. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Chrissy. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and and your advice and experience. Thank you for having me, Felix. It's been an honor. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.